Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Fun Facts Episode 4, Amy's Mirror Image. I am your co-host, Amy Hagenbaugh. Well, I'm the host, Amy Hagenbaugh, and my co-host is... Kelly Strickland. And our guest is... Reed Baker. So I want everyone who has... Well, I guess if you know me or if you don't know me, whatever image you have of me in your mind, I instruct you to imagine the complete opposite in every way except for race, and that pretty much produces Reed Baker. Um, He and I have been friends for a long time, and we basically share maybe only two things with each other. We have a very similar analytical thinking process, but that we deploy on opposite ends of the political spectrum, and we have a deep, enduring love and respect for each other. (laughs) So, um, Hamilton, I'm... Okay, I'm going to explain that in a minute, but Hamilton, I'm really, really glad that you're joining us this week. Thank you so much. Me too. I'm excited. It should be fun. I've been looking forward to this since pretty much the day we decided to start a podcast. Before I forget, what makes you awesome? Uh, I, I grew up in Texas. I went to school at Georgia Tech, uh, and now I work for Google. And I should say that I work for Google, but I do not speak for Google. Great. Thank you. And I need to clarify a mistake I've already made. Um <laughs> So, like I said, I've known Hamilton for a long time. I knew him when he went by the name Hamilton, and now he goes by the name Reed. So I'm going to do my very best to call you Reed during this next hour, but I have already failed, I think, three times in about 30 seconds. (laughs) So for those confused, Reed and Hamilton are the same person. Reed is the name that you should call him. Hamilton is the name I'm going to try to avoid, at least for now. Perfect. Great. Okay. And now let's get to topics. So, Reed, what's your topic this week? Uh, my topic is uh, Cal Exit uh, or the secession movement in California. Great. My topic is on why acknowledging and discussing privilege is important, but why do those conversations also seem to annoy an observable chunk of the population and what do we do about it? Specifically, I think we have one of those people that are kind of annoyed by conversations on privilege with us today. So we're going to ask Reed to help us understand. Is that right, Reed? Yes. Okay, good. Carrie, what's your topic? So my topic is Mar-a-Lago and basically what Trump has been doing down there, what it's cost the taxpayers, and then try and build an argument for why or why not he should be spending more time there. That sounds great. We should try to defend Trump every week. It's kind of fun. I Yeah, I actually like it. And a little exhausting. <laughs> yes. Oh, I also wanted to note, I mean, not that this isn't obvious already, but another thing that makes Reed awesome this week for us specifically is you're the first man we've had on our podcast, Reed. Uh, continuing the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm sure we'll talk about that in the privilege section. <laughs> um. Okay, let's go to California and the secession movement. Is it a movement yet? Uh, maybe. Uh, but at the very least, we can talk about what, si- what things have concretely happened. So we'll start off with there's a group called Yes California. They need to raise just shy of 600,000 signatures. And their goal is to put a referendum on the ballot um, to delete adherence to the United States, whatever that means, uh, from the Constitution of California, and to add a 2019 referendum on independence. Uh, By their own rules, the 2019 referendum would require at least 50% of people in California to vote. I think that would be eligible voters to vote. Um, And would require uh, 55% of the people who voted to vote for independence. So it's stronger than a 50% plus one. Um, And uh, that's that's what's already happened. some interesting secession backstory. Uh, there was a case called Texas v. White, which uh, revolved around whether or not you had to respect bonds that talked about the secession uh, of the South. Uh, and it settled that states uh, do not have the right to secede. But uh, if you read the opinion, at least a couple of legal scholars believe that it may not take a constitutional amendment, which surprised me. Uh, at least a couple of people think that you could do it with Congress and the president. Um, and, and was this a Supreme Court decision? Uh, this was a Supreme. Yes, it was a Supreme Court okay. decision. I'm citing legal scholars because we only have one case that revolved around secession. There's not a lot of jurisprudence, but well, aside from the Civil War, exactly. Right. But there was there was one, but like the Civil War didn't cover whether or not a state could ever leave. It just said that you couldn't unilaterally leave. Oh, 
Yeah. Okay. And I have some interesting polling. Um, okay. 24% of adults nationwide think that their state has the right to leave the United States and form an independent country. This is according to Rasmussen reports. It was a telephone survey. Uh, and for those of you who th- are worried about the state of the country, uh, 59% still disagree. But I thought that was interesting. And it wasn't like some states. It was that their state has the ability. We- we've also had some interesting secessions inside the United States. For example... Uh, Maine seceded from Massachusetts uh, near the Revolutionary War. Like they were once a single entity? Yes, they were. They were considered a colony of a colony, and uh, Maine is long and along the coast, and they were taking brutal punishment from the British, and so they seceded and became slightly more neutral. Um, And Hmm. also West Virginia uh, seceded from... uh, West Virginia seceded from whoever they were next to uh, when there was the civil war, but they seceded because they didn't believe in the mission of the South. And so we've actually had at least two secessions um, in the, in our country's history, which is kind of interesting. And I didn't know know it was today. I didn't know it was called secession still when it's just states separating basically. Yes. In fact, I found a a couple of interesting law articles that say that uh, for all the things that secession hopes to bring, um, a more responsible option might be a state-based secession. So like there's a group in California called that really want the state of Jefferson, which is, I believe, their county uh, in Northern California. And you'll see posters and billboards and bumper stickers and things like that too, because they would like to secede from the rest of California. They have very different political views and more water than California would like them to have. <laughs> well, if their name is Jefferson, I don't know why their name is Jefferson, but there are some clear conservative ties with that name. Yes. Oh, that's possible. Um, okay. So I have two questions. You can answer them in whatever order you like. Um, what is the viability in your estimation of this actually actually going through in California and are they at all, I mean, Texas, I feel like talks the most about seceding. So are there Californians calling Texans and asking how to do this? Obviously we haven't seceded, but I feel like we might have some plans written out already. We, we actually have several plans. Um, there was a quote where the governor, the, there's a reporter talking to the governor and said, did you know that 22 county and local provinces added secession to the local GOP platform? And his answer was, I don't think it was that many. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I think there's uh, no chance California actually leaves. Um, in fact, I don't even think there's uh, a chance that the referendum will pass. Um, California ballot initiatives are kind of goofy. So it really depends on how much money the, the barrier for entry in California is really low. 600,000 signatures actually isn't that many. So if they've got the funding, I would not be surprised if we saw the, the vote to add the referendum in 2019, uh, but not the referendum itself passing. Uh, and I do not know if they're calling anyone from Texas. I didn't find that in any of the reporting. Yeah, that'd probably be very hard to suss out in generic reporting. Unless I knew people in California trying to secede, and I also knew people in Texas, which isn't an unreasonable possibility. Right, that's not. I'm surprised you don't know any Texans who are trying to secede. I mean, other than me. <laughs> um, I think at, go ahead, Carrie. point in their life have thought about seceding. You know, it's, it's our birthright. Every Texan? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't want us to, and I think it's ridiculous, but I'm... But you've thought about it, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> One other interesting thing I found was a report on uh, economics, uh, and it turns out that secessions have a mixed bag. Um, occasionally, they turned out really bad, like when Nigeria tried to part of Nigeria tried to secede, and they had a giant civil war, which caused a bunch of economic calamity. But mm-hmm. uh, there have been other instances, like the Czechoslovakia, um, and when Sweden and Norway split, uh, that were actually really good for both countries. Um, and it turns out that like on an individual case by case basis, there could be either good economic reform or bad, but it doesn't appear to be a universal in one way or the other, which the author found surprising, but that's what this, that's what their information discovered. I took a couple courses in business school on global competitiveness. And there's all sorts of frameworks and things like that that you can use to analyze countries and kind of place them in their competitive position globally. Um, and a secession like the prospect of a secession would be a really interesting way to 
so we were just doing it by like looking at existing countries and trying to figure out what they should invest in to improve their competitiveness. But it'd be really fascinating to look at a, a state or some piece of a country that was thinking of seceding and evaluate, like, if you seceded, here's how competitive you might be. So basically use it as like a go or no-go factor. I don't know if that's ever been done. Yeah. Um, but it does get to the point that I think is thrown out often when Texas says they want to secede. Or Has California suggested this ever before? Um, actually, there's a bunch of people on the left and the right have done this a bunch. I would think this is the farthest that California as an entity has gone. There was also a weird thing where they wanted to break into six states um, that was also happening last year. Huh. That seems like California is just in a tizzy from the election. Yeah. Well, and this was part of the this, For this particular secession, is there, what's the reasoning behind it? If you're saying that it's, it's gone forth before, is there a different reasoning, or is it just a continuation of the past failed attempts? You know, I, I think that a lot of people are nervous about the federal government, and that's why you see this on the right and the left in alternating patterns based on who's in charge of the federal government. Right. Which, um, the one point I wanted to make that I kind of spoke over myself is that the fact that California and Texas have big economies make us feel more reassured that we could succeed successfully. But to what you just said, Reed, um, I want to ask, do we think this is patriotic to secede because you're mad about the federal government? And I'm specifically interested in you, Reed, because is it fair to say that you're anti-federalist? Uh, I, I have large skepticisms about the federal government's effectiveness okay. in doing many things. So it seems like, based on that, you'd be like, cool, states should break up. Y yes, I actually um, have done a non-trivial amount of secession research over my life, and I think that secession is a good idea in many scenarios. Um, it's also really expensive, and we should be worried about the precedent. Um, there are a couple of places like Guam and I, so I talked to a coworker about this and there are a couple of places like Guam and Hawaii where they are of massive strategic importance to the country, but also those places are a little bit different. And if they decided to leave, we probably wouldn't let them. Um, even if they did have, let's say a hundred percent support. But do you think, so, okay. So you're a state's rights advocate, but you're also a proud American. Yes. Sure. So, which, I mean, I, I knew that I just wanted to give you the opportunity to affirm that. Um, I think it's, uh, cowardly to jump ship in a sense. I, I wouldn't argue, uh, I wouldn't ar argue cowardly. I, in this case, I think we can make an argument that, you know, deciding about political ideas in public where there's robust debate is very American. Um, and that I think you can also argue that, uh, there is value in California staying if, they care about um, if they care about policies of the left, they are a, a bastion of where it could be possible. Uh, it is more likely that California will be able to do something or New York or pick another big state where uh, you can do something interesting and prove that it works and prove your detractors wrong. Um, so that there you can be an example um, and live with inside the United States Constitution. Carrie, do you think it is patriotic or cowardly for a state to talk about seceding when they're mad about the federal government? Or somewhere I mean, in between. Yeah, that's a very black and white scenario, right? <laughs> like, yeah. I, I certainly wouldn't say that it's cowardly for a state to think about seceding from a nation, because I think throughout history we've seen numerous cases of nations, not necessarily our own, although at certain times in our history, maybe, um, that the nation has not been in the right, and that the state was in fact protecting its citizens by launching secession movements. Um I do agree, though, with what Reed was saying, that if California stays in the nation, it could have a much greater impact than it could if it secedes. Um, and not just talking about providing an example of whether leftist policies are working, but also just in terms of electoral votes. You know, I was thinking if California puts this out on the ballot at a time when Republicans control all three branches of government, it might even be in their benefit to let California secede because that's a huge percent of the democratic base that would go with them. Yes. Do you, did you happen to see read how much more Hillary won in California? Uh, it was, I believe three quarters, but I, I don't have the numbers yeah. in front of me. 
Yeah, but huge, basically. I mean, California was a big reason why she killed it on the popular vote. Yes, it was. Yeah. So, I don't even know what you make of that, because the, the, like, the popular vote apparently matters, I don't know, incidentally to, to the Electoral College. You know, we're all Texans, so we've all thought about secession at some point in our lives. But at least when I think about secession in Texas, I never take it seriously. Because I think that if we're going to honestly talk about secession, A, we have to have those economic models that would prove that we'd be more successful if we succeed. And I just don't think there's a case for it in either state. Um, And you have to kind of admit that the federal government and the country that you're leaving are irreconcilably ruined. And I don't know if that's something that we could argue. You know, you might disagree with the politics of the day, but four to eight years from now, we would have an entirely, entirely different set of politics. Well, I have a question for y'all. What do you think mm-hmm. about the international politics of leaving? Because I could see a case where you could say the United States is weakened because it has less people. But I could also see a case where California now has a vote on the UN. Huh. Well... I mean, I think realistically, we wouldn't, California, the state of California, the country of California and Texas wouldn't probably get into the UN for a while, but let's pretend like they did. We would assume a close alliance between whatever country California made and the US, so that might be helpful. I I think ultimately, though, it would, I don't know, it it would weaken America's international power, and that's, I guess, what I'm more concerned about. Maybe. And it would, would weaken its image overseas as well, I think. Yes. Again, maybe, but um, for the value of having coalitions and not uh, unilateral action, as we've seen in like the Gulf Wars and in Iraq and Afghanistan, we worked really hard to make sure there was a French plane. Even if the French plane wasn't useful and it was yeah. like mostly American planes, there was value in having it be a multi-country decision. Um, the argument that uh, California probably wouldn't be on the Security Council, probably is a valid one for reducing its power. But it is it is another ambassador. It is another, um, huh. you know, people would, I would argue that England is a strategic ally. And it doesn't matter that they're another country. We see alike on many issues. Um, I just thought that was a different angle of viewing the same, the same situation. That is a very interesting question. I have, we have to pretty much move on. But after our first or second podcast, uh, Reed was debriefing with just me. And whatever question, oh, we was talking about the minimum wage. Should we raise the minimum wage? And I was saying basically yes. And Reed asked me, what would make you say that we should lower it? So I've tried to apply that to pretty much every question ever since then, Reed. <laughs> Just what's the, what's the circumstance that makes me flip my opinion entirely? So thanks for giving me another different way to think about something. Cool. So we're summarizing that we don't think it's going to happen. Carrie and I at least don't like the idea, but Reed is mostly cool with it. I think that secession can work. I don't think it's a good idea for Texas or California right now. Uh, and that even that they may get enough cent- uh, signatures for this to be a news story over the next year, but it probably won't matter in the end. Yeah. Okay. Well, I also think to get secession to truly work, you have to get the support of business. And I don't think with where California's uh, economy is poised and where it's strongest, I, I don't see the benefit of creating another country. Um, and imposing a lot of tariffs and kind of, kind of cutting trade across state lines. That I think that's where I fall down on whether it would be physically possible or not. Well, let's move on to my topic, privilege. So in two out of the four previous episodes we've recorded so far, I know I have personally cited some privilege that I hold. Um, and I also... Really, honestly, the reason I'm raising this question is because one of those times when Reed was talking to me about the cast afterward, you used, you specifically used the phrase, I wrote it down. Uh-oh. Check your privilege is super annoying. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, which I'm happy to discuss that. Um, so I don't, honestly, I don't really have a t- current topical art- article here this week, but I do have one that, from February 3rd, that is a good segue into our conversation. Um, there was a a school in Westport, Connecticut, which is a wealthy coastal town that is 93% white. And they asked their high school students to write an essay reflecting on how white privilege impacted their lives. 
which actually reminds me very much of an essay I had to write in college that I loved um, after I took a queer theory course and I had to write how how queerness impacted, well, everyone had to write how queerness has impacted your life. Um, so that's beside the point. But basically the kids were fine writing the essay on how white privilege has impacted their lives, but their parents got pretty mad. And this is, this is a, a liberal town. They voted two to one for Trump, but they were very loath to... Two to one for Trump? I'm sorry. Thank you. Two to one for Hillary. Thank you. Um, but the parents were very resistant to acknowledging that white privilege might have impacted their lives or their children's lives. And my question is, I... <laughs> I am certain that white privilege has just privilege in general has impact, especially a a wealthy white suburb that 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 has impacted those kids' lives. And I don't think it's anybody's fault. I don't think privilege is a fault, which might be getting at why it annoys people. But maybe we don't make that clear enough. But I want to understand why that's so annoying to generally people who I think of as having privilege, asking them to reflect on it. And I want to understand how to talk better about it. So, Reed, will you begin to educate us? Uh, sure. So, I, I don't presume to speak for all who have privilege, uh, okay. but um, uh, I, I, I thought on this uh, hard, um, and what I came to was it's a information asymmetry problem. So, when someone says check your privilege or write an essay about how your privilege has done something. Um, what that does is it says that I have taken a cursory glance at you and I know from the limited experience I have that, uh, everything that you've earned is, uh, is somehow less valuable because you didn't actually earn all of it. Um, and people reflect very deeply over the set of their personal accomplishments. I would argue that everyone believes that they've gone through some sort of hardship and the things that they've overcome, they're proud of and the things they haven't, they, they, maybe they're not. Um, and so, uh, saying that undermines the, the struggle that people feel. And I, I would continue with that people feel their own struggle much more than they feel other people's struggle. And so it comes off as, uh, as ignorant and unempathetic. Okay. I can understand all of that. Carrie, do you want to start the response? Yeah, I, I understand. And I think that that's a really valid point that a lot of people see it as a personal attack and see it as a way of demeaning what they've made or what they've accomplished. Um, I do wonder though, if we could reframe the way we talk about privilege and rather than saying you have the value of what you've earned is less because of your privilege. If we frame it as um, the value of what you earned is great but other people have also earned great things, even though it doesn't show because they've struggled against larger obstacles. Um, or if, like, if we think of it as a way, like if you imagine writing an essay, you need to understand the source material that you're coming from. And so if you think of privilege as understanding that source material and understanding the struggles that people get through, and you use that as a way of framing their accomplishments rather than dragging down your own, um, I wonder if that would be a better way to talk about privilege. Yeah, I also wonder if, um, I want to note here that, the like I said, the two times I've referenced it on this podcast, I was I was noting my own privilege, and, like, this is the opinion I'm coming from, but it's, you know, also carries this privilege with it. And I wonder if, I, and I also, I'm, like, 99% positive I've never once told another human to check their privilege, which I do think... even in the best setting can come off as confrontational, um, even if you don't mean it that way. And I wonder if just rather than telling others to check your privilege, it's just like in an argument. You never say what the other person did. You use I statements, right? So maybe um, just modeling the behavior of acknowledging, look, I have this privilege and so I I think this way about something. Just if we were better at modeling, modeling those conversations rather than telling other people to have them, that would be better? Yes. Uh, as I understand it, the underlying goal is to and encourage and identify empathy with, with uh, other people, and that's not an objectionable end goal. 
Like most people should be able to get on board with having some set of empathy with others and not wanting to make people feel unincluded, especially if they're a member of your team or uh, you work with them or you have some other social interaction. They're, your, they're in your Sunday school class. You don't want to make those people feel excluded. You want them to feel included. Right. And, right. And, and I, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, uh, y'all are MBA students, so I'm going to try and talk business to you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the way I was thinking about framing it, that's very different. That takes away the personal aspect of it, um, would be to frame it like you would frame rent seeking. Um, so for those of you who don't know, uh, rent seeking is, uh, when a company earns more money than they should, or a person earns more money than they should, because there are a set of laws that are set up so that they make money, not by having the best product, but instead by having some special uh, arrangement with the government. So think a limited or total monopoly, um, think laws that uh, make home ownership way more expensive after a bunch of people have bought homes. And so uh, they can charge higher rents. And really, it, rent seeking is only the marginal difference between what you would gain under a true market versus what you gain in this market that has some different rules. And I, I was wondering what you thought of that analogy or that framing, or if it even applied, because I'm not a business student. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, I think that's a very good, help, that's a very helpful device for people who know what rent seeking is rent seeking is um, because yeah, the premise behind privileges. So in part of my prep for this, I watched a video of um, Bill O'Reilly on the John Stewart show. So obviously it's an older video and <laughs> um, John Stewart didn't even like interview Bill O'Reilly about the book that he was promoting. He just straight up said, I'm, I only want you to acknowledge that you have that part of your success has come from your privilege. And so they had this 10 minute, argument essentially and um john stewart finally drove the point home because he asked bill o'reilly about where he grew up and he grew bill o'reilly grew up in some neighborhood that was for set aside for gis or veterans which i guess bill o'reilly's family was a military family and and then um john got bill o'reilly to agree that he grew up in a great neighborhood and he grew up with you know a a safe place that gave him values, et cetera, community. And then, then John, uh, John Stewart asked Bill O'Reilly, were black people allowed to live there in the sixties when he was growing up? And Bill O'Reilly said, well, no, <laughs> like that's privilege. And it's not saying that Bill O'Reilly didn't also work hard or had to whatever, get a good education or whatever he had to do to sell a bunch of books that he was then selling on John Stewart's show. But it's, yeah, you lived in a community for, for veterans that was specifically restricting people based on arbitrary thing, reasons at that point. Um, so that, yeah, that sounds like a version of rent-seeking, rent kind of, getting a, an advantage for no other reason than... Yes, but also there were a lot of people who were... And this gets to the, like, why people find it super annoying. Uh, there were a lot of people who were in that neighborhood who did not achieve what he achieved. And so yeah. to, to claim that he only could have achieved what he achieved because he was advantaged is, um, is belittling and mean. Uh, yeah. Which I is why it's, no, go ahead, Carrie. I don't think that's what the majority of people who talk about privilege are saying. And I could be wrong. You know, I also don't speak for everyone who talks about privilege. Um, but I, I think it's more of an acknowledgement of how you got to where you are. Um, and acknowledging the people and things that helped you along the way, which, again, I think is a universal sentiment. None of us would be where we are today without the support of whether it's family or friends or community or educational grants, what have you. Um, there was always something or someone who helped us. And I think that privilege is just being open to acknowledging that and open to the, the fact that it wasn't just us who got us where we are. Uh, sure. Um, but the thread that I've been trying to weave through here is why do people find it annoying? And if you'll remember, the, uh, President Obama said a very similar thing about small business owners, and they responded in a very, uh, very aggressive and hostile way that said that you couldn't have done it without anyone else. And they were like, and then a bunch of people posted their stories about all of the mm -hmm. hardship they went through. Do y'all remember this? No, I, I don't, honestly. Okay. Well, uh, I, I think it gets to the, the, undermining what people did the way my mom would put it is always be humble uh because remember you were blessed uh and that does not come off in a 
uh, aggressive uh, way. And I was wondering what, what y'all think the difference is between what I hear my mom say to my sister and I all the time versus this, like, check your privilege, which just grates on me. So your mom says, always be humble because you are blessed? Yeah, my mom says, always be humble and kind. She's actually quoting the country music song. Uh, and then <laughs> remember that you are blessed. Uh, remember that you're blessed. Do you think it's the audience? Like, do you think it's the fact that it's coming from your mom and not from a stranger? Uh, potentially. That, that, that uh, I would imagine that she could say lots of things strangers couldn't. <laughs> but she also has kind of understanding of your situation, right? It's not someone coming in and judging you in the first 30 seconds. It's someone who's seen you grow up and seen the struggles that you've overcome. Yes. And, and I think... Um, it's sort of, sort of to that point, I was having this conversation, this, a similar conversation this weekend. And I think another reason why when people say check your privilege, is they get, uh, people get annoyed is because what can you actually do? Like I meet a Trump supporter and I say, check your privilege, like whatever, you're a white straight male. Of course you're fine with him being president or whatever. That's totally hypothetical. But, and I tell him to check his privilege and what, what, like what, what's he going to do about that? I'm still a white straight male. Like it's 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 a challenge without giving someone a an actionable. Even if they wanted to be like, oh my gosh, yes, I'm suddenly empathetic to this. Um, Assuming that it causes empathy, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> um. But yeah, yeah. It basically it seems like. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean. When you talk about privilege, do you have to give people actionable scenarios or should you even? Like, is that even more intrusive to say, check right. your privilege by doing X, Y, and Z? Right. I mean, I, it depends on if your argument is, this is a person who I don't believe believes that they have privilege and I want them to have empathy, in which case you have a persuasive argument you need to make. Or if your goal is to be obnoxious and tell them that they're wrong, which can feel good. And mm -hmm. that's always nice. It's kind of like the conversation we had about um, our liberals were our liberals too educated from the second or the episode one as being educated, like holding us back because we just don't get, I don't like, like when Obama said the small business owners got a bunch of help along the way and they were like, no, we didn't. We worked really hard. It's a different way of considering. And I think that if, if, if that had been put differently or maybe by a different politician or with, you know, on a more personal basis, I'm sure those individual business owners that got mad would be able to identify someone in their life that was helpful in their process. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, I, I would, I would imagine that you'd have a, you'd have a scenario where if you were saying like, Hey, we would like to call out mentors that did that, that have done a great job over the time. And you're, I mean, that those are exactly the kind of people who would nominate their friends and family um, the people in their community who had, had, uh, showed strength. Um, but I, you know, I wonder if this all comes down to the difference between the people being called out and people they grew up with who also did not succeed at that level. Like maybe we should have the, you know, what does the conversation look like for somebody who, uh, is, is now no longer in the workforce? How do they view check your privilege? Um, yeah. because that's a whole different, lens yeah and people who are like boiling down the last election to the, the in the just the flattest way there was a bunch of women and people of color and gay people that were you know rah rah hillary who were telling people in the flyover states that we're having real economic struggles still crawling up out of the crash like well you're straight white men you're, you're gonna be fine and they probably didn't feel that way obviously because they needed a um, the white working class, which historically has been a democratic-leaning entity, swung pretty hard right. And I don't think it was only because gay coastal elites were telling him to vote vote Democrat, but I don't think that was unrelated or taking, to some of the dynamics. Or taking their issues for granted because not much had been done to support right. them. Or at least it didn't feel that way. Uh, there's also a bunch of signaling, so... Uh, Trump did a good job of framing a handful of issues around the I support you and lots of people will vote against their own interests if they believe you're one of them. Uh, mm -hmm. And Hillary's goal was to try and take over 
uh, the what I would call the final Republican enclaves of wealthy uh, coastal cities. And she did successfully. Um, mm-hmm. She won one of the highest percentages of college graduates that's ever happened. And so, I mean, the strategies didn't work out numbers wise the way they expected. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, we need to move forward, but my summary on this is try to say, check your privilege less often, but talk to people about the personal things that supported them in whatever success they feel proud of. How does that sound? Oh, that sounds good. I would say, uh, uh, recognize an underdog story and be proud of it when you when you see it. I'll agree with that too. Mm-hmm. Okay, so very easily we're going to slide from conversations of privilege to a conversation about Mar-a-Lago. I feel like that follows. Carrie, yeah. let us know what your thing is. All right. Um, so I have been thinking a lot about Mar-a-Lago in the last couple of days, um, and there have been quite a number of news stories that come, have come up around it. Uh, and so I guess I have three different ideas. When I think about Mar-a-Lago, there are three things that give me pause. Um, so I can run through those, and then I would really just love to see if we can build the argument for why Mar-a-Lago is an acceptable part of the Trump administration, partially based on these. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. Um, and then partially based on kind of outside factors that I might not have brought in. So what you say? Well, I was just going to say, I might disagree with you more than you think already. So I want you to tell me why you don't like Mar-a-Lago. And, and I'd like to get some facts on the ground about how often he's spending there. What What's actually happening in Mar-a-Lago? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just to frame it up, Mar-a-Lago is the uh, coastal resort that Trump owns down in Florida. Um, and it has, he still owns it and he still profits from it, even though it's not under his name anymore. So that is one of the properties he has quote unquote divested. Um, but essentially he, he's been down there quite often. So in the last five weeks, he has gone down for four different weekends. Um, and so if you run the numbers, that's 31% of his presidency that's been spent in Mar-a-Lago. Um, and each visit costs the taxpayers roughly $3 million um, in terms of security, in terms of getting him and his staff down there. Which is presumably more expensive than Camp David, because Camp David is already outfitted for, to host a president, right? Exactly. exactly. So numbers-wise, um, this is about $3 million. Each of Obama's uh, vacations to Hawaii is about $3.6 million, and the difference in cost is really just the airfare on Air Force One. Okay, and how many... How often did Obama go to Hawaii? Those numbers I don't have, um, but I know that in terms of just costs, that in uh, in the month that he's been in office, in the six weeks he's been in office, he has spent roughly the same amount that Obama has spent in a year um, in terms of those costs to go down to the to Mar-a-Lago. Wait, so in wait six weeks, Trump has spent what Obama spent in a year. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine Obama probably went about four times a year, three to four times a year, depending on those costs. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so the the issues that I see with Mar-a-Lago, one of them is obviously the cost of taxpayers. Um, so we have a very expensive administration. Um, we are paying for the trips to Mar-a-Lago. We are still paying the security costs at Trump Tower in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're paying the costs of Trump Jr.'s business trips. Those two aside, just the cost to taxpayers for going down to Mar-a-Lago is number one. And number two is the security breaches that either have already occurred or could easily occur in these settings. Um, And just for the record, Mar-a-Lago just released a statement a couple of days ago saying they they are taking security measures. So now it's prohibited to take photos or videos of the president. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, of course, after that... A visit um, from the president of, I believe it was South Korea. Um, Wasn't it Shinzo Abe? No, it was Shinzo Abe, you're right. Um, North Korea launched a missile attack, and then there there were quite a few private citizens who got photos of both presidents and also photos of Donald Trump's notes um, from that event on their cell phones. I only saw one picture that was pretty... uh, like you couldn't really see what was going on. I didn't realize that they got pictures of his notes. 
I would mm-hmm. love to take a picture of the president while he was dealing with an international crisis. How cool. Well, of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that was the thought, right, is is that it happened during dinner while he was in a public dining room. So, of course, everyone started taking photos. Um, and I, I can't necessarily blame them. I think that I would probably do the same thing. Well, I mean, you can blame Trump. I can blame Trump, certainly. I, I wouldn't blame the citizens for trying to snap that. Um, okay. And the third issue is the idea that if Trump makes Mar-a-Lago a fixture and where he's spending his time, it could become a pay-for-access scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's profiting from this resort and because people who have memberships at this resort and spend time at the resort know that they have a higher than average chance of of spending time with Donald Trump, you could very easily get lobbyists and other influential people paying those membership fees for the chance to be around him. Yeah. Okay, so I actually hear four issues that you raised. Taxpayer cost, national security privacy breaches, or security breaches, um, emoluments basically pay for access and is he wasting our time or like is he is he just there on a like a vacation and is he taking too much of it i don't know if that's the issue i mean he he claims to work every time he goes down there and he certainly is paying for golf or he's playing golf as well but he he is working so that's less of a concern for me okay i agree there too but um, yeah. and, and I think of the three of them, pay for access is the one that I'm most concerned about because it's the one that has is easiest to fix, and I don't see it fix being fixed. Instead, um, I just read that Mar-a-Lago has doubled its initiation fees since January. Yeah, and I think they've raised a bunch of prices on the food. How do you mm-hmm. fix pay for access without increasing the cost to the taxpayers? I, I guess I'm trying to understand how those two are connected to you. Yeah, same here. Oh, well, you can fix pay for access by banning anyone else but the president by from using Mar-a-Lago like you would from Camp David. But the taxpayers would have to pay for Mar-a-Lago for the whole presidency. Oh, you, you could also fix pay, um, fix pay for access by, but like, banning new memberships as well. You know, because I think that they have a cap on membership access. The people who are members there have been members for 30 years. So certainly it's it's the new incumbents, the people who are willing to pay those doubled initiation fees that I'm more worried about. Oh, I don't think that fixes pay for access because now the access is, do you know somebody who already has access to Mar-a-Lago, which is mm-hmm. another connection of wealthy individuals? Like you haven't solved the problem. You've just made it harder to find. Right. Or is the way to solve it that Trump doesn't socialize with the public while he's down there? Or he covers the cost of Mar-a-Lago. We, we close the club. It's just his vacation area, mm-hmm. and he maintains the upkeep. That yeah. would fix pay for access. I mean, I, I guess. But and it wouldn't cost taxpayers any money. Sure, but we didn't do that for George Bush at his ranch in Texas. And yeah, I'm, I'm not proposing it. I'm just okay. saying that's an answer. But we need to build a case in support of Trump's use right now. I'll enthusiastically hop on. Yeah, go ahead. So in general, the cost of running the government is not that big. Uh, and the money is well spent. If you believe that the United States does a fairly good job at keeping us safe, if you believe the United States does a fairly good job at you know, making people believe in orderly transitions of power, um, if, if you believe in the federal government, the federal government doesn't cost that much, and it should be able to spend whatever amount of money it needs to to make sure your president's making the very best decisions. Because a bad decision from the president costs way more than flights. But wait, you didn't agree that we should fund the NEA two or three episodes ago. Sure. I actually, I talked to somebody today who changed my mind, but also the NEA budget is somewhere in the $140 million range, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so do we think that that's going to cross $140 million? Maybe not. But again, the if you believe in – my argument is if you believe in the federal government, uh, the decision to have your president in a scenario where he's uncomfortable or makes a bad decision is way more expensive than uh, a, the decision to pay for him to be there. Um, and I would argue that lots of presidents have had places where they felt more comfortable um, or they felt like they had the advantage. So if Trump feels like he has a negotiating advantage at Mar-a-Lago versus Camp David – um, then he should be able to take that opportunity. Carrie, what were you going to say? Yeah, I, I think you answered it, which was, I was just clarifying that your, your argument is predicated on the idea that Trump's decisions are best made at Mar-a-Lago versus the other residencies that we're supporting. Yep. I mean, like, he's an executive. You 
if this were a private company, granted the taxpayers wouldn't be paying for it, which means this wouldn't be a non-story. But like Larry and Sergey, the CEOs of Google, they they have places where they are way more comfortable. The CEOs at Walmart make literally everyone who is going to pitch something to sell at Walmart, they have to fly to the middle of nowhere, Arkansas. I think that's where they're from. Arkansas, because yeah. all the pitches happen at home because travel on your executives makes them make poor decisions. I mean, like those, I mean, there's just a, I see a lot of companies do this for their executives. I would imagine running the country is more important. I'm trying to think of what's the upper limit on too expensive to make our executive comfortable. Cause you're not wrong. You oh. need your executives to, it, it's, what are you going to say? No, no, no. Oh, that, that, that's a clever argument. Um, where would we put the bound? Uh, my, my boss always says, like, if we're trying to estimate a figure, he's like, well, zero dollars is too cheap and 600 million is too much. Actually, that's probably not too much for protecting the president. Like, let's say a trillion dollars is too much. So, so what's the line? Like, what's in, what's the spot in between? Because we're basically saying that at this rate, at this rate, Trump is going to be how much more expensive than keeping Obama comfortable? Six uh, weeks into 52. Uh, 12 weeks and a quarter, four quarters, so eight times more expensive. Okay, so like, is it, let's just very basic math, say that Trump is eight times more expensive to make good decisions for us than our last president? Like, that seems, especially because I don't really trust Trump's decisions no matter how comfortable he is, but in general, eight times more expensive seems like a lot. It does. Okay. Yeah. And if you, if we were looking at this as a business, we would be measuring returns, right? So we would say the cost that we're spending to make him more comfortable, to give him greater decisions also has to equal greater decisions by him. So we'd have to compare equal costs between past presidents and our current president and then the decisions that were made in those presidencies. How would you, how would you quantify whether or not we're spending too much on this? I'm not sure. Does the president have a budget that he's got to live under? Like, is this money coming out of some other place that would happen? Because surely we don't give the president an un, unbounded budget. Actually, that's a really good question. I don't know. That is a good question. I don't know either. I mean, I know he has a salary that I think he's only taking a dollar. He's not taking a salary. That's cool. Yeah, I'm, that's symbolic or whatever, but I'm happy with the with the gesture. Larry I think actually a dollar. couple of his billionaires on staff are only taking dollar salaries. Okay, so are you concerned? Well, we already kind of talked about pay for access. I think pay for access is actually the hardest problem uh, because pay for access around the president is like, I mean, water goes downhill. Money goes to access to the president. <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not sure that this increases the issue. Um, I, I like the fact that if we, for example, made Mar-a-Lago uh, applicants public, like then you could just find it out really easy, which is kind of cool. And there, is, there actually is a petition in Congress right now that's been floated by a couple of Democratic senators to make Mar-a-Lago applicants public. That and seems the, like a comment. It is that all previous presidents have published lists of everyone who went to their private residencies. Okay. Yeah, it seems like that's how you would solve it because there are lots of people who want to belong to Mar-a-Lago who maybe don't want to be associated with Trump. Mm-hmm. Right. And and but in again, arguing in support of Trump here, like Reed just said, every president ever has gotten paid for access. Like that's just a thing that always happens. This might be a different version of it. But yeah, if you're the president, you only ever meet cool people and probably rich people. So it's kind of like, well, it's a moot point. We've already had this problem, I guess. Is that convincing? Sure. And really what you have to worry about is you have to worry about tit for tat. Like you could pay a bunch of money for access to tell the president that like, I would like you to do this thing that he doesn't want to do and he will take your money and then he will say, okay, thank you. And please leave. Well, yeah. I mean, hopefully it's not that direct because that is just straight up. Um, I don't know what the legal term for that is, but that's just bribing the president. That is emoluments. No, it's not bribing unless you get something, right? It's it's just oh, poor yeah. business ethics. If it's it's just not poor business ethics, it's just poor business to pay a bunch of money to see the president and have him tell you to like, please go back to your hole because we don't like you. <laughs> I guess that's true. Um, and what about the security question? 
Uh, I think that the Secret Service can solve this. Like, this is what they do. It's their job. Um, the If Mar-a-Lago is going to be a place he spends a bunch of time, he needs a security room, just like the White House does. Yeah, but that's but another taxpayer. Is, you know, at least in the case where he, all the people were snapping and taking photos while this international incident was happening, he did have a private secure room, and he wasn't using it. So, yeah. so you can have the most secure room in the world, but if business happens in a public sphere, then you're always going to have security risks. Yeah, and I bet the argument is, well, it was a needed immediate to be addressed immediately. We couldn't walk to our secure room, which is a completely uncompelling argument. No, Unless there's but... literally a nuclear weapon on, our way, on its way to America. No, that's not like... the argument. The argument is the president wanted to be seen doing something about North Korea, and it was really easy to do that in front of a bunch of people. Like, oh. there was probably a political motive for doing this. And also, like... Does North Korea have internet access? Like, do, 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 like, <laughs> they, was they there do, any cost? Do, but it's very limited. <laughs> My point is, was there any cost? Like, like mm-hmm. if we were dealing with a potential war with like Saudi Arabia, or if there was a coup happening in Mexico, like I could see where like maybe this information shouldn't get out. But like, it's North Korea. They're like really scary, but not because they have access to information that we know that they're scary and we're not afraid of them. Mm-hmm. That's a funny. I would have never thought that, but I mean, because he's a he's a showman, right? Like before he yeah. was even elected, he was like working over was it Thanksgiving, uh, trying to get jobs to a, a air conditioning repair plant factory, and they were like, mm-hmm. the president shouldn't spend his time on this. It's only like a thousand jobs, and I was like, yeah, but he wants to be seen doing the sets of things that his voters want him to do, and dealing with North Korea is an easy one. Right. He's, and I've, I've mentioned this before, he's brilliant about the way that he promotes himself for doing, yeah, saving, I think ultimately it was 800 jobs. There was supposed to be like, a, there was like 2,000 in that factory, and he only actually succeeded in keeping less than half of them. Um, but we're still talking about it, so. I mean, I brought it up because I, I thought it might be a thing that mattered when we came to showmanship. That No, but you're right about the showmanship yeah. thing. I didn't. Yeah, it's exactly an argument for him being a showman. I mean, maybe um, which is why he could have this most secure room in the world, and he most likely would not be in it. Yeah, and I don't know how you wrangle a, the most powerful man in the world to go do his homework at his desk and not in front of the TV. You convince his chief of staff? I guess so. I guess that's why people were pleased that he asked for Rance Priebus. Yes, I would argue that he's not doing a great job. But yes, the there there are people who are very comfortable. I mean, the chief of staff role is super important, and uh, you are almost as powerful as the president when you are the chief of staff because you control the president's schedule and you're the one who knows the things that the staff knows before. But you need to be able to give the president plausible deniability. Like if you want to if you want to change Trump's behavior here. You go have a meeting with the chief of staff where you tell him why it's in his best interest or the president's to do this. And then the chief of staff just says, like, hey, we're going to go to this room now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So did we convince ourselves that it's OK? That Actually, I have to say, my starting point here is that I am not terribly bothered by him going to Mar-a-Lago. Um, I think it's just my general distaste for the man that, like, lingers. But... <laughs> It's a very easy thing to be upset about. The question is, if we're prioritizing issues that we should be focusing on, is it one of the top issues? Yeah. Should it be one of the top issues if six months from now he still has gone there every weekend? Yeah, I guess I'd be a little bit... Yeah, if he really goes at eight times the rate that Obama did, I might get increasingly upset. Or maybe the lesson here is... The president who's eight times better. Right, Exactly. (laughs) What were you going to say, Reed? Uh, or maybe the argument is that all of this hubbub about Obama playing golf and going to Hawaii, like, is, was a was a waste of time and was a political political stunt then, and this is a political stunt now, and it distracts from whatever's happening. Which I must point out, the hullabaloo about Obama golfing came a lot of the time from Trump. Yeah, certainly, certainly during the election cycle, Trump called out how many times Obama went on vacation and said that. If he, if he were to become president, he would not take a single vacation and would never play golf. Right. He did say that. Uh, yeah. How sure are you he said he would never play golf? I'm reading a Washington Post article right now. 
Um, let me see if I can Clever. find the quote. Yes. Because I can argue that, or I would argue, uh, absent new information, uh, that Trump could, I could totally see a scenario where he, say, where he would say, I will never take a vacation. And also a scenario in which he believes that playing golf with particular people is, again, a great tactic for uh, getting your way, for being good negotiating, for building a rapport with a country, a person, uh, a congressman. Exactly. Like, I, I actually have no problem with him playing golf. And I also would say that the president, being the president is an extremely difficult job. You should, for the sake of your own mental sanity, take breaks because we want a leader who's refreshed and who's able to make solid decisions. Um, I do think that it's, it's only being brought up now because of the perceived hypocrisy. Okay. I have quotes. Oh, yay. So in June, 2015, he told the Hill, this is Trump speaking. I would rarely leave the white house because there's so much work to be done. I would not be a president who took vacations. I would not be a president that takes time off. Also more recently, he has said basically what, what Reed just said, um, not very long ago, he said, I always said about President Obama, it's great to play golf. He didn't say that, but whatever. It's great to play golf, but play golf with heads of heads of countries and people like yourself when you're looking for votes. Don't play with your friends that you play with every week. Uh, moving, he said more, did the day before election day, hey, look, it's good. Golf is fine, but always play with leaders of countries and people that can help us. Don't play with your friends all the time. And then the article goes on to say, that while Trump has played with heads of state, he played with Shinzo Abe, um, he's also just played with random friends. Yeah. Again. And I, have a, I have another quote, actually, because I was wondering about the, the language. And so in a 2016 event in Virginia during the election, he said, uh, quote, I'm going to be working for you. I'm not going to have time to play golf. Oh, there we ah, go. There we go. Uh but again, but what is, my, my argument ahead. holds in both those cases, Trump's a man of exaggeration and uh, direction, if not magnitude. Um, and so the statement is, I will work for you, um, and that he believes that golf is a great way. Like, I would argue, many business people believe that golf yeah. and other activities like that are a great, a great way of having uh, rapport with someone uh, so that you can be on the same page about something without immediately jumping into the confrontational part of a negotiation. And I will not disagree there. I Yeah. Golf is a pastime that many people enjoy and can do business while they're while they're enjoying it. That's fine, but he's not exclusively using it for that. And again, he just what's the value of quoting a Trump quote? Because you can find a contradiction anywhere. Yeah, but I, I would say for just summarizing this, so we can move on to the last section, is that not nothing in Mar-a-Lago is extremely concerning now. Um, it'll just have to see how it plays out. Um, how many times he goes down there, how many times to this point he plays golf and whether the security issues are fixed in the future. Do you well guys put. have any, any different interpretations? No, I don't think so. That was a good summary. Thank you. I agree. Cool. Excellent. Okay. So let's move on to what's giving us hope. I have two pretty small things, so I'll, I'll start. Carrie, you've already seen my first one. At some point early on this week, I'm willing to bet Reed this did not hit your circles. Um, Hot Trudeau became an internet meme. <laughs> oh, exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Hot Trudeau is a present reality, but there were images of him when he was even younger and even more attractive. And I, I shared this early on in the week, and I wanted it to be my thing that gave me hope, but I didn't really understand why looking back at an attractive Trudeau should give me any hope. But I figured it out. Um, the hope it gives me is that Attractive, woke men can one day become global world leaders. And that makes me happy because hopefully there's some of them out there now. Woke? Woke, which um, I wondered if you'd know that word. It means like socially aware and engaged and ready to... And leftist. Okay. <laughs> and then I have one more thing. Emma Watson got some random useless criticism this week. Because she did a beautiful Vanity Fair cover, which was not even a topless cover, but people called it a topless cover. It's just a pretty picture. Um, and I'm not going to give that controversy any more airtime. But Emma Watson's reaction to it was people were saying that she was anti-feminist for having a, a, like a moderately sexy Vanity Fair cover. And Emma Watson's reaction was justified frustration and consternation, in my opinion. And she her quote is, 
Feminism is not a stick with which to beat other women. So I just love Emma Watson and think I'm grateful that she exists and can speak eloquently even when she's in the middle of a ridiculous controversy. Yeah. I watched that interview too. And I remember the part that made me laugh was she's talking to the, the, she was addressing it during some press coverage for Beauty and the Beast. um, And the co-host on there with her was saying, so they're saying that you can't be a feminist and have boobs. That's what they're saying, right? Yeah. She said, yeah. She said, what do my tits have to do with it? (laughs) Like, like, Fair enough. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Plus, Emma Watson's awesome. Yeah, she yeah. really is. Um, who else? Who wants to go next? I will. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. Take it away. All right. Um, so mine is the one that I don't know if you remember. A couple of weeks ago, I said I have this one coming up that I really want to talk about, but I'm not going to talk about it till it happens. Um, yes. Yes, I know this so one. That was Conan's Made in Mexico show this week. So Conan O'Brien went down to Mexico and did a show using an entirely Mexican cast. So stagehands, cast and crew, interviewers, musical guests, um, all Mexicans. And it was just a really delightful experience, I have to say. Um, He made a fool of himself, which is kind of Conan O'Brien's way to be. Um, So he he learned enough Spanish to give a couple jokes in Spanish. Um, He played a role in a telenovela. He was the guest of honor at a quinceanera, and then he just walked around the streets of Mexico City asking people to pay for the wall. <laughs> um, so it was, it was just a fun, lighthearted show, and I thought what, what I really liked about it is that he framed it as a way to bring the people of the two countries together, you know, basically saying, look, not all of us represent some of these fearful policies that sound like they're personally attacking the people of Mexico. Um, and I think that in his own way of being a bumbling, bumbling, giant, idiotic American, um, he kind of humanized both groups. That's great. Was there anything else in Spanish or just a couple jokes? There were just a couple jokes. Uh, both of the guests, so the two guests were Diego Luna, who was there talking about Star Wars, um, and then Vicente Fox, who was is the ex-president of Mexico and who is famous for tweeting and then saying on live television in Mexico that Mexico would not pay for the effing wall. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't use the word effing. Did but. he use it in, did he say it in English or Spanish? Um, both. Oh, okay. I, I think he realized how many mentions he was getting on Twitter after that and just kept saying it over and over again. You'll have to teach me the Spanish word for that after the show. Okay. <laughs> Reed, what's your hope? Uh, my hope is that I recently discovered the West Wing, uh, I have never seen it before. It's on Netflix and I started binge watching it and it gives me a lot of hope about the presidency and how it works. And it made me happy. Oh, that's great. Did you listen to Slate's Gab political gab fest this week where they said there are three types of people that people that believe that DC is like house of cards with like, you know, cutthroat murderers or it's like Veep with rec- you know, hapless idiots or it's like the West Wing with inspiring, brilliant people. Inspiring, brilliant people who operate on ideology and persuasion. Yes. Yeah. It is everything I like about critical thinking, but in a show. And it makes me I'm happy. I'm glad you're enjoying that. Yeah. And as an That's aside, awesome. they have the same issues now. And then they talked about healthcare <laughs> and gun rights. And and like <laughs> like the most things are exact. We're talking about the same stuff. And the show started in 1999. I can't believe we got through this show and that's the first time you said the word gun. It is. I almost didn't. It was a, it was a slip. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. The the next time you come on, it should be timed around some gun issue that we can actually actually debate with each other cuz that'd be really fun. When silencers come up for dropping off the NFA, it sounds perfect. All right. Well, you let us know when that is and and you'll be our guest. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you so much. I'm I'm really glad Reed that you're with us. Thank you. Definitely. I'm going to do our credits. And our first credit is, honestly, to all of Reed's friends that are listening, possibly for the first time, thank you. And please stay with us, because you're probably a different sort of people, and we'd love for you to keep listening. And Reed, give them my contact info, and come come on the show and be interesting people, and I'm sure you're Uh, awesome. I will totally do that. Okay, so... 
Hi, Reed's friends, and hang on with us. Other than that, Zencaster is our call and recording platform. Crazy Glue is our intro music by Josh Woodward. And Love Wins is our outro by Lee Rosevear. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.